impeaching a cabinet secretary, the most dangerous time in the Middle East in 40 years, a massive change in Americans' views on the economy. But we're going to start with Taylor Swift. I'm Matt Robeson, Balance of Power Roundtable, joined, as always, by our conservative commentator, analyst, and political consultant, Alicia Preston, and our former two-term Democratic U.S. Congressman, Paul Hodes. Of course, we start with Taylor Swift. And we're not just being silly about this. Alicia, you're a Republican. Um, mm. I don't know, an increasingly fraught term for you. I know you're going to hang on to this to the bitter end, but that time is coming. Your time is coming, Alicia. Mm. In the meantime, explain what is going on. Why is your party losing their mind about Taylor Swift? The Chiefs are going back to the Super Bowl. Spoiler alert, everyone in America knows that. She's dating Travis Kelsey. And all I'm seeing on Twitter is Republicans losing their mind about Taylor Swift. The best one, the best one was there was this great clip of some Republican saying, oh, this is a put-up job. Joe Biden is behind this. This whole relationship with Travis Kelsey is a, it's a false flag operation. Trap. What? Alicia, what? What? Why? Let me just first point out that it wasn't some Republican that started this. It was a Fox News host. <laughs> Millions of people. <laughs> I think I have to direct my ire on this situation at Donald Trump. Donald I knew you were trouble when you walked in. And now we've got some bad blood going on. But I'm going to try shake it off for the sake of the Super Bowl. Can we just golf clap Alicia? That was great. Did you think did you do that on the spot or did you No, think actually that? that was off the cuff. I didn't even think about that. I've just been having fun. Oh, I've been oh having fun God. with this whole concept. Um, so okay, good. for those who are confused, so was I. And I actually posted on social media today because it was immediate. I watched both football games. I I'm a Kansas City fan because I love Mahomes. This is long before the Taylor Swift travel and Travis Kelsey thing. I think he's a great up-and-coming player that we're going to see for years. And I love Kansas City barbecue. And I'm not kidding. That is one of my factors into how I choose my sports teams that aren't international soccer. So I was rooting for the Chiefs. They won. And then all of a sudden, that very night, Twitter explodes that I'm supposed to boycott the Super Bowl. And I didn't understand why. And apparently, it's because a player on Kansas City is dating Taylor Swift, who in 2020 endorsed Biden, and therefore I have to boycott the Super Bowl. Now, this seems like a lot of work to me about who, what games I'm going to watch. I mean, so I have to go through every player on every roster. Does coaching staff count? Do cheerleaders count? And do they have cheerleaders in the NFL anymore? But not only do I have to find their political persuasion, I have to now look into their boyfriends, their girlfriends, their spouses, I don't know, their mom. I'm not sure. So it seems like a lot of work I have to go through in order to decide whether I'm allowed to watch a football game. What about the manhood of these Republicans is so threatened by Taylor Swift? I saw Don Jr. doing one of his um, uh, coke-addled things where he – oh, did I say that out loud? Yeah, the, yeah. the guy's <laughs> – he's definitely on drugs, okay? And he did one of these very weird – like, And we're not talking like gummy bears. No, really seems no, to be. No, these are not I, gummies. I'm pretty sure that the man, this just came to light, that uh, that the, the House, there are all these records from the Trump White House. They were prescribing serious narcotics to someone in the White House. We don't know who. Anyway, that, that's another story. But Don Jr. went on one of these things where he's like, I would advise Taylor Swift not to endorse Joe Biden. Why would you wade into politics like this? And it's like, this is only going to hurt her, make half the country mad at you. Oh, really? 
Taylor oh, doesn't care. <laughs> yeah. Th thanks for your business advice, moron, <laughs> as the Trump organization is about to be dissolved. It's going to be given the uh, business death penalty in New York because you're all a bunch of fraudsters. That's great guidance. Taylor Swift is doing fine. The Eras Tour paid <laughs> $5 billion. Like, she she's okay. actually is worth more than Donald Trump. And he's saying, oh, this will hurt her. This will hurt mm -hmm. her career. Mm -hmm. Oh, like, like it did when she endorsed Joe Biden in 2020. Yeah, sign me up for more of that. I mean, is, I want is, more ooh, losing Taylor Swift style. I want to lose yeah. as much as Taylor Swift is losing right the now. I, I would dream hurt. of it. Oh, you um, referenced the masculinity of the people going after Taylor Swift. Wait, did you just say masculinity or masculinity? That's fantastic. You just made up another great word. You're on I a know. roll. I should what? write for Webster's. Did you take some gummies of some kind this morning? Like this is this is amazing. You're like free associating your way to brilliance. <laughs> Only mm. the Haribo kind, which isn't nearly as good as others. I yes, hear of. There's actually. something about Taylor Swift that is emasculating these men who have a lot of SDE. It, what it is very simple. I'm just going to say it. This is going to be very offensive to almost everybody out there, but it's a fact. Oh, good. Everyone is jealous of Taylor Swift. These men, their wives don't look like Taylor Swift. They're not as talented as Taylor Swift. And let me tell you something before the pod, you mentioned her red lipstick. Every woman is jealous because until you hit like 77, you cannot pull off bright red lipstick. It's impossible. You have to be like Taylor Swift to pull that off. And she not only pulls it off, she owns it and it's fabulous. So the reality is, Men are jealous that their wives are nothing looking like Taylor Swift, acting like Taylor Swift, or as wealthy and successful as Taylor Swift. Women are jealous of her because, obviously, she's Taylor Swift, and therefore, everyone's hating on Taylor Swift, and yet we'll spend $5,000 for a seat to her concert. What is it? So, Paul, you think it's jealousy, too, that Donald Trump just can't wrap his tiny hands around this issue? I mean, he's look. up he, his tiny hands. He's, well, trying well, to he's the one who started it. He's trying to wrap his tiny hands around the issue. Now, what issue is he wrap? Okay. Yeah. I mean, he likes to be the, he's, he likes to be number one. And frankly, she's number one. She's times person of the year. She's richer than he is. She's better looking than he is. She's younger than he is. She's in better shape than he is. I mean, she and Travis look happy. He and Melania are nowhere. I mean, what's not to be jealous about? Plus, she's not facing 91 felony counts and having to spend seven hours every day doing her makeup like he is. I mean, it's, of course, he's jealous of her because she's bigger than he is. Can I tell you a fun fact? When Donald Trump agreed to do the Comedy Central roast of Donald Trump about 10 years ago, he said that they could make fun of everything about him. They could make fun of his weird hair. They could make fun of his Game of Thrones-like embrace of his daughter. They could make fun of his very odd media career. They could make fun of everything. The only thing they were not allowed to make any jokes about was to impugn his wealth. They could not imply that he was actually poorer than he claimed to be. He's very sensitive about this. I think a lot of it isn't just that she's a young, successful woman. That's part of it. I think it's that she has made serious bank. She probably is worth more than he is at this point. And he finds that very threatening. Anyway, I just, I love this. I, please, Alicia, what did you, you've said on this show many times, we'll get to this in a few minutes, like up till now you have advised Democrats, please try to convince Americans that the economy is great. Keep using the term Bidenomics. Can I turn the tables for a second? Republicans, please keep attacking Taylor Swift. <laughs> Keep saying that she's terrible. Keep saying that 
anyone who's with Taylor Swift needs to be against Trump. I invite you. I just, I want um, the political plus. I'm hoping that we will see her on the campaign trail in 2024 doing benefit concerts and concerts for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Well, That's what you may get your wish, man, because there's been reporting on this from no less a source than the New York Times, which says that inside the Biden White House, they are crossing their fingers. There's probably, if they're trial ballooning this and leaking to the press about it, there's probably conversations like there's stuff happening. Um, All right, they let's do. get on to something else. There was a vote in Congress, in a committee. They want to impeach Alejandro Mayorkas, the Secretary of Homeland Security. It's like a clock that chimes for a 13th time. It's not only strange in itself, it calls everything underlying it into question. It is a very bizarre thing. Paul, you and I had Michael Gerhardt, the preeminent yep. scholar on impeachment, like the world-leading mm. scholar on impeachment, on our show a few weeks ago with great mm. conversation. And he said in no uncertain terms that we've entered this weird Alice in Wonderland time in America where there are, this is unprecedented. These are impeachments for absolutely no reason, no evidence, nothing behind them. It's all in service of they want to get media focus on immigration and the border. That's a reasonably good political ploy. I mean, that's what else have they got? So they've got immigration. And they're flogging it, flogging it politically to whatever they can do. So it makes perfect sense in the bizarre world that the Republicans inhabit about what they're going to do with their political power. You're not alone in saying that. The Wall Street Journal, that noted liberal rag, wrote in an op-ed this morning, a policy dispute doesn't qualify as a high crime and misdemeanor. And they took Republicans to task and said that this is a terrible idea. Our former guest, Karen Demersian, uh, who wrote the definitive book on the previous impeachments of Donald Trump, reported in the New York Times this morning that the search for evidence continues. And this comes within the context of Donald Trump saying out loud, like not even like not even trying to hide this, that he does not want a deal that would actually make progress on the border and give Republicans most of what they want because it might help Joe Biden politically. He wants to actually hurt America. He wants to actually hurt the causes of his party in order to hurt his opponent politically. The Biden White House believes that all of this is going to turn around and boomerang on Republicans and actually hurt them on what they're hoping will be their number one issue. Alicia, Republican communications guru. Are they right? I think there's a lot of complexity here. Look, let me go back to the Mayorkas thing real quick. I mean, I think Mayorkas is doing a terrible job at his job. I think he's not enforcing the laws he should be enforcing. I think he is misleading Congress and not cooperating with Congress. I think someone like Jonathan Turley, who is a Trump advocate and a constitutional scholar, is right. None of these things are impeachable offenses. I mean, if people got impeached in Washington for not doing their job, the city would be empty, period. I mean, that's just a fact that no one's really great at their job down there these days. And I think what is being done is exactly 
exactly what Donald Trump is saying is being done against him, which is why, which is we have now weaponized government against our political opponents. And I but think that's that is why, very dangerous. But that's why it's really kind of brilliant. I mean, let's face it. So you've got Republicans in control of the House. They can do whatever they want with impunity, frankly, because even with a slim majority, they're in control of the committees. Folks, if you're listening... That's what control of the House of Representatives means. It means that whoever's in control gets to set the agenda because they're in charge of everything, even if the majority is one vote. Could you put a finer point on that? Because I think that's it's a not fully appreciated aspect of the House that you have lived through, that the majority in the House is everything. In the Senate, because of the filibuster, because of unanimous consent, because of the rules, because of the structure of the institution, individual senators in the minority can exercise a tremendous amount of power. Explain what you mean by why the majority is everything in the House. Because when you have the majority, it's not just that, that you can theoretically elect your candidate for speaker. But it's because the party in power takes charge of every committee in the House. And the committees are where the work gets done and the bills get vetted and voted out of committee to go to the floor to get voted on. And the committee chairs are extremely powerful because together with the speaker and other leaders of their party, they basically set the agenda for the House of Representatives. The control of the majority is everything. I want to answer the question that you asked. I said it's complex, and here's why. And I don't think it makes much of a difference come November. And here's the reason. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. If you are someone who firmly believes the border is the biggest problem we've got right now, and you are going to vote predominantly on that issue, you are voting for Donald Trump. He is the candidate of the border. We all know this. We've seen it. He's his racist, his xenophobic comments, his pushing it down. The border is his thing. It's one of the only policies he ever mentions. So you're already voting for Donald Trump. So who are the people that are going to be upset that he has told his sycophants in Congress, do not allow a border deal to happen because I don't want Joe Biden to have a win, delaying for at least a year, if he were to become president, which he won't, any solution to the border? Who are the people that's going to bother? No one. Because you are trying to tell the Trump people that care about the border, that now the border is not going to be solved. The biggest problem you've got isn't going to be solved because of Donald Trump. Go vote somewhere else. And they're not going to. So there is no one who is that going who is going to be swayed by it or very few. People make their assessments on stuff like this based on cues from their leadership, cues that they get from the media or cues that they get from trusted sources. If Donald Trump declared that this border deal was good, in fact, if this exact deal was happening in a Donald Trump presidency, he would declare it a huge coup by the greatest deal maker of all time, and he would be behind it, and Republican MAGA-based people would be behind it. The reason I think that this is all interesting is that it points to a massive change in power centers and how political perceptions are formed in America. And that's one of the reasons why, Paul, I thought it was interesting for you to kind of go through the dynamics of where power rests in the House. I think 
all of this has changed. There's a classic case study in American politics of what was called catastrophic care in Medicare. Back in 1988, the Reagan White House got behind a change in Medicare. And basically, it extended new benefits to Medicare recipients, but there was an added charge that went with it. A grassroots lobbying organization, the National Committee to Preserve Social Security and Medicare, that, Paul, you are tightly connected to them. We've had their representatives on this show. The head of that organization was FDR's son, James Roosevelt. You've had Barbara Keneally, the longtime head of the, sh the organization on this show. They were a well-respected by seniors advocacy organization. Because of the charges, they turned against the law. And in the space of one year, they mobilized a genuine grassroots campaign that sent letters to members of Congress and under duress, Congress repealed the law, okay? So where was the power in all of that? It was with an advocacy organization with a great deal of credibility. Let's fast forward to 2013. After Barack Obama defeated Mitt Romney for the presidency in 2012, there was a there was a coming to terms. <laughs> there was a, a big soul-searching effort by the Republican Party. Alicia, you probably remember this vividly. They commissioned a report, and they said in the report that Republicans must embrace and champion comprehensive immigration reform. They thought that they had lost because they didn't appeal to the rising electorate of Latinos. They had to fix that. Two days after the election, Sean Hannity said that he had evolved on the issue of immigration and now favored, I can't believe I'm going to say this sentence, a pathway to citizenship for the majority of people here. Behind the scenes, Marco Rubio and Lindsey Graham reached out to Hannity and other Fox anchors to lobby them to say, please be with us on this. Your voice on this is going to set the opinions of our voters. If you're with it, we can do this. If you're not, we can't. The Fox anchors got on board. But when the details of the bill emerged, Fox turned on it. And after they turned, same thing happened. Rubio, Graham, they started hearing from constituents. They started getting the vibe on conservative talk radio, and they disavowed it. Marco Rubio's political career has never recovered. And that killed immigration reform that would have been very meaningful about a decade ago. Where was the power then? It wasn't with the advocacy organization. It was with Fox News. Fast forward to today. Yes, Fox has been against this immigration deal, led by James Langford, no lefty pushover. But where is the power base now? It's Donald Trump declaring that this is a bad deal. Why? because he said the quiet part out loud. Not because the substance of it is bad, but just because it would help Joe Biden. He's against it, therefore his voters are against it, therefore Fox News is against it. Where is the power? It's all concentrated in Donald Trump. So my only point here is that this is a massive change over the last 40 years, a massive change in where power rests in America. And for the Republican Party, it's just another sign that it's all become concentrated in Donald Trump. Is it really that different than Mitch McConnell? 
saying to out loud about Barack Obama, we're going to stop every anything he wants to do. We're going to stop anything and everything. And oh, by the way, we're not even going to vote to a, appoint the actually middle of the road Supreme Court Justice Merrick Garland that he wants. The game has not shifted since the scorched earth policies of Republicans started back in the late 90s with Newt Gingrich. What is different, as you point out, I think, is that Donald Trump, who is a demented pig and a thug who only cares about himself, is now in control of the policy agenda of what was once a grand old party. I certainly agree with the narrative description of Donald Trump that Paul just provided. Very well done. I don't think it's too new to say there is a power structure shift. There, there's always a power structure influencing outside of government. I mean, you can go back to the 30s and the 40s when it came to unions and even through the 50s. I mean, so I think historically there is a place of power outside of government that is influencing with great power the activities of government. It just, to Paul's point, where that place of power is shifts. And today, when it comes to Republicans, it is sitting on the shoulders of one man who doesn't give a damn about policy or what's good for the country. He cares only about what is good for him, his electoral ability and his image. So there's a lot of different rationales for where power is shifted to. And this one is an unfortunate one because it's strictly a cult of personality. But the concept isn't new. It's just different where we are. I agree with both of you. And I just think that it's interesting. I mean, this is the quintessential study in political science is a book called Who Governs, which was a study of New Haven in the 1950s. And it went through what you just went through, Alicia, the different constituency groups, the advocacy groups, the unions, who really has power. And that's an ever-evolving, ever-shifting thing. I just think that the episode that we saw with catastrophic coverage in the late 80s really wouldn't be replicated today. You wouldn't see that kind of concentrated power in an advocacy group. I can't think of one that has that amount of sway. None of the unions, I mean, they're significant, but they don't have that kind of power. The shift that you talked about, Paul, was both kind of the scorch earth tactics of Newt Gingrich, but also the rise of conservative, I shouldn't even call it conservative, of right-wing media and Fox News and conservative talk radio in the 1990s, which concentrated a tremendous amount of influence within the Republican Party, within the media sphere. And we saw that play out with immigration in 2013. And now, as you say, Alicia, Fox News still influential. They can still, but they've had their disagreements with Donald Trump. Right now, Donald Trump, unitary control, almost entirely unitary control of the agenda and the opinions of the Republican Party. And that is not great. Not Who's coming fast on his heels, however, is Elon Musk, who owns <laughs> X, formerly known as Twitter, has gotten rid of all the people who were watching over whether or not there was disinformation and crazy crap happening on the social media channel. And by the way, it is the rise of social media that has enabled somebody like Donald Trump, a would-be dictator, to exercise inordinate amounts of power through our addiction to social media. So that has been the huge change we've seen in terms of the shift, enabling the shift of power. But I'd keep a close eye on Elon Musk. And Matt, you said at the top of the show that you had seen something on Twitter. I'm no longer, frankly, 
for good or for ill paying any attention to Twitter. It's my own personal boycott of Elon Musk. But there's something really dangerous going on there and something really dangerous going on with Elon Musk. I just want to backtrack a minute on one thing you said that I appreciate you changing, and that is I'm getting mighty tired of the term conservative being applied to Donald Trump and anyone who supports him. The man is not a conservative. He's a he's radical. Never been a conservative. He's a radical, but he's also switched his party affiliation five times. This is someone who supports things like an internet tax. There is He raised the debt seven or eight trillion dollars while president, trillion dollars. And yet Republicans are applying the moniker conservative to him. And if you are a conservative and don't support him, you are no longer a proper Republican. You are a rhino, which is so trite, Republican in name only. And it boggles my mind. And I, I want to start my own little movement that the term conservative can no longer be applied to Republicans who support Donald Trump because that is anti-foundational policy of a conservative. Can I just say, and I know I'm not helping matters with all of this, and we can move on to another topic, but Alicia, because are trying really hard to keep alive the idea of what an actual ideological conservative is and should be, you're trying. You have been subject over the years and recently, especially, to, I don't know, MAGA mobs of fucking idiots who seem to be applying the rhino thing to you. And I know. Defense from someone who is a Democrat doesn't mean much to them, but nothing means much to them except for the word of their dear leader. So allow me to say here, and yes, gonna have to put the explicit label on this episode. You can see it. It's a little E when you go to Apple Podcasts, when you go to Spotify, you'll see a little E there. It's explicit because I'm going to use some naughty language. I'd like to say to all of those people out there who are attacking Alicia, fuck you. Fuck you very much. <laughs> Thank you. I want right. to say that too. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, I was trying to say it so you wouldn't have to. I but, appreciate um, that. <laughs> I just, you know what? The world doesn't need your shit, you lowlifes. Okay. Let's. And don't ever troll my daughter again. Oh my gosh. People behave online in ways that I'm going to give these people some credit. I don't think they would behave this way in real life. I don't think they would behave this way in real life to a person like Alicia or anyone else. I don't. I hope not. Anyway, all right, let's move on. Speaking of really downbeat subjects, we do have to talk a little bit about uh, the Middle East. We try not to be a foreign policy-focused show because we have some knowledge in this vein, but domestic <laughs> politics is really our wheelhouse. That said, three U.S. service members died over the weekend in a drone strike tied to Iran, and Houthi rebel attacks on shipping in the Red Sea have continued, and they have now struck an oil tanker, which is casting fear into world oil markets. And there may be a ceasefire deal on the table between Israel and Hamas. It is under consideration right now. And it seems trite in the face of all of this to talk about it from a domestic politics angle, but that is kind of what we do. Anthony Blinken said that it's the most dangerous time in the Middle East that we've experienced since the early 1990s. The old calculus of this was, I mean, this was even sort of a trope in movies like Wag the Dog or The American President, was that when there are foreign policy crises where the president can look presidential, it kind of helps him politically. Is that still the case? Or is it the case that 
this sense of chaos around the world and in the Middle East is leaning into Americans feeling that things are spiraling out of control and maybe they need to see a political change. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. Biden may want to try to contain this, but it's really not up to him. He's up against some he's up against an impenetrable foe in Iran. And ultimately, I trust Biden to walk a very precipitous line here. And one of the real challenges about all this is it puts Ukraine on the back pages of our thinking when Putin is just licking his chops and thanking thanking Hamas for diverting attention away from Ukraine. And of course, we're dealing with Republicans who are playing politics with lives and politics with democracy and freedom around the world in order to try. What they want is to show that Biden is not strong. That's what they want. That's why they're doing what they're doing. So in terms of domestic politics, the Republicans have gone beyond despicable, in my view, to treacherous behavior. So we're talking politically on all this. Look, there has been, and it's been going on for years, this general malaise in America and this general feeling, and it's only a feeling, but there is for many people a feeling in our communities that something bad is on the horizon. And that horizon may be two months away, six months a year, five years away, but that in the world, there is something bad that's going to go down. And a lot of us just have this feeling and we're kind of seeing stuff come to fruition. And then we go, where does it go? And I don't know the answer to any of that. There are so many fronts happening over in that part of the world that we are going to get involved in probably more. And so what does a president do? Now, I will say, unlike some of my MAGA brethren, I do not blame Joe Biden for the death of three Americans in the Middle East. I think this happens and it's a sad, horrible, unfortunate reality and why our service members should be so honored in their lives and in their deaths because they risk this every time they put on the uniform and God bless them all. But where Joe Biden's missing here is he's not doing anything unpresidential, but he's not doing anything presidential either. And what I mean by that is no matter what was happening in the Ronald Reagan administration, he could get on that television screen and make us feel good and safe, make us feel good about being Americans and making us feel safe and proud under his leadership. And he could do that without even trying. I don't think Joe Biden has the style to do that. And I think that in a moment like this, you could calm the country if we had that. And that's not even a criticism of Joe Biden. That's just not who he is. It's not his how he presents himself. I think it would be good for America if we had someone who could be that protector, the father of Americans. And I think Joe Biden would do well to come up with a way to give some kind of speech, the old fashioned fireside chat, to let us know what we're feeling isn't true. The world isn't falling apart. And America, as we know it, is not on the cusp of dissolution. That's a really interesting idea. I wonder, seriously, if we're sort of past that, where anyone in America would be receptive to that kind of thing. But as much as I disagreed with Ronald Reagan on many things, and there were many regrettable aspects to his presidency, I think of the Challenger disaster. And when Peggy Noonan wrote him that amazing speech that night, where he was able to reframe a national tragedy by bringing people's minds back, not to that searing image of the explosion, but 
to the astronauts on the launch pad approaching the space shuttle before, in his words, they slip the surly bonds of Earth and touch the face of God. And that kind of poetry was not what the fireside chats were about. But as you say, with FDR, they were effective in selling the Lend-Lease program. They were effective in saying, this is what we need to do. And this is why. And I'm going to tell you what I'm thinking about it. And we, I agree with the criticism that we have not really heard from Joe Biden in a meaningful way since October 7th. And trying to say, I hear the pain of people who identify with Palestinians, who are concerned about their suffering and, and the death that we've seen in Gaza. And here is why, as a policy matter, I feel that it's extremely important to support Israel. Here's where I have disagreements with what they've done. Here is the way forward. I don't think that would hurt and it would be worth a try. And I, I think that's a great idea. Look, speaking of Americans not necessarily responding to what the president is selling. I want to close out the show by talking about a shift that's happened in the last few weeks. We have talked for more than a year on this show about the economy and the fact that by many measures that economists consider significant, like GDP growth and jobs, the economy has been doing great. But from the standpoint of inflation and prices and what people can afford in their lives, it has not been doing great. And that's what's led to this vibe session. It's, I want to give a hat tip to Kyla Scanlon. I didn't know that until this week that Kyla coined the term vibe session. Well done, Kyla. This feeling that Americans seem to have that the economy is terrible in surveys. They said that it's worse than at the height of the Great Recession, which is sort of statistically not true. And it's led to a lot of very weird findings where people have rated their own personal financial well-being very highly, and yet rate the overall economy very negatively. There's just this feeling that something is going wrong somewhere and they're down on the economy. But in the last week or two, we've seen more signs that this vibe session is coming to an end. The most trusted survey of consumers that's seen as sort of the most accurate measure of how Americans are feeling about the economy the Michigan index, we've actually had the head of that survey on this show before, has gone up by a record amount in the past two months. People are feeling much better. Expected inflation has gone way down. Actual inflation is very close to the Fed's target rate. And people are beginning to talk about the economy as a political matter in very different ways. So here's my question to you guys. Purely from a politics standpoint, the longstanding assumption has been that economy good, good for the incumbent president, good for the incumbent party, good for that party's representatives in Congress. Not so good economy, bad. Is that even true anymore? Is there any connection anymore between what's happening and people's feelings about the economy and political outcomes? Or are we so warped by negative partisanship that people are going to sort of just think whatever they already think, and this isn't really going to matter in the 2024 elections? I think yes and no. And what I mean by that is this. When the economy is good, I may not go to the ballot box and be like, the economy is good. My egg prices are down, so I'm going to vote for Joe Biden. That's not how that works. How it works is, how are you feeling? 
How are you feeling that election? Are you feeling positive and upbeat and you're not broke and that makes you happy and you're not looking at economic indicators, but how is your household, your overall vibe on how you are living and your family is living in that period of time helps the incumbent. If it's not good, it hurts the incumbent. That is, I think, generally true and is to this day, particularly in the states that matter, which would be swing states that decide who has the power in Congress and the Senate and the presidency, right? Because they're not the uber partisans. However, we've got a completely different palette this year in that it is potentially, not potentially, most likely, Joe Biden versus Donald Trump. And so are people voting on the economy? I don't think so. I think when we get to November, if it is Joe Biden and Donald Trump and then down ticket, it is Democrats versus Donald Trump sycophants, the place there, then this will strictly be a vote for the vast majority of Americans, including those who are swingy voters for Joe Biden or for Donald Trump or, more importantly, against Donald Trump. And I think that it's just a completely different dynamic because of what we discussed so much earlier is this is a cult of personality right now. I hear you, but I think that the vast body of evidence about how people feel about the economy influencing their vote is still going to be at work here. In every measure and every poll that comes up, how people feel is related to how they feel about the economy more than any other issue. And I have to believe that here we are in February. Let's just assume for a moment that the good news about the economy continues to roll right through November, that we're now on a course for growth, for higher wages, for lower inflation, that we start to see mortgage rates come down, that the Fed doesn't raise interest rates anymore, that the Fed lowers interest rates some because they don't need to tame inflation the way they did. Let's say we have 10 months. If over those 10 months, there's nothing but good news about the economy, that's bad news for MAGA and Donald Trump and the crazies, because it means that folks who are voting from just a sense of how things are going to vote at least feel more favorably about the job that Biden and the Democrats are doing. That I just don't see any way around that as an influence. To me, the biggest effect is the Sun Tzu guidance to choose your battles wisely. A lot of politics these days is about what are we fighting about? I'm not trying to fall into the Fox News fallacy to dismiss immigration as an issue. I'm just saying that this is where, this is the field of battle that Republicans are choosing right now because they think it's the most fertile for them. For Democrats, the 2022 election was, let's fight about abortion. I think the biggest thing, therefore, that this change on the economy does is it takes this, as you're saying, Alicia, as a kind of a defensive issue, maybe off the field, if things continue this way for the next six months, it just takes it away as an area that Republicans can use. It makes it more of a battlefield that Democrats should want to be on. I don't think it helps them to be on the immigration battlefield. If the conversation is about immigration in 2024, that's advantage Republicans. If the conversation is about abortion, that's obviously advantage Democrats. And now here's another field of battle that is at the very least neutral. I would say that if you're a Democratic campaign manager, strategist, ad buyer, you're not afraid to talk about the economy. And in fact, 
you'd rather shift the conversation to the economy and off of immigration. So to me, that's the biggest thing is that it's, you're just going to see the ad landscape, the talking points landscape, the focus landscape shift because of these underlying vibes. On that note, we've got to get out of here. We, Alicia, I'm going to put you on the spot. Do you have a parting Taylor Swift song lyric that you want to take us out on? Karma. Karma it is. All right. For Paul and Alicia, I'm Matt Robeson. We will see you next time.